Dear Heavenly Father, we stand here now wanting to confess that you are Lord. That is why we gather together to, to see and to hear your glory. Lord, I pray that uh, the message uh, that comes out of your word today, who you are and what you've done and the riches that we have because of that. So Lord, uh, prepare our hearts now to worship you and that this message would go out with clarity and, and give us all understanding of what you're teaching us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're back in our study of, uh, of Romans this week. We're going to be exploring uh, the text in verses 16 to 17. We're actually going to be starting in verse 15 since it really leads right into the next verse. Uh, before we do, I do want to give kind of a brief overview and summary of, of Romans, uh, as well as reminding everyone about last week's sermon about the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, this is very, very pertinent to our passage uh, today because all scripture is knit together, and the common thread is of the, the divine authorship of it. As a matter of fact, we were talking after Sunday school just about how amazing it is that so much of scripture, how it all weaves together, these different passages, like in Sunday school today, how Ephesians just leads right into this, and the power that we're going to be studying about that God has given us. And the Old and the New Testament, it's all just one glorious drama that's got this common thread that goes all the way through it. And we have to understand that that's because it's divinely inspired. It is the word of God. Uh, and, and because of this divine authorship, it's, we have to understand that it is supernaturally created and is preserved. And it is the highest authority to which anyone can appeal. As you'll see again today, both Old and New Testament proclaim that same message. There's so much meaning in these, these two verses, uh, trying to whittle this down today uh, for, for our message. Uh, we really need to spend time considering the meaning and implications of, of each part of this. Uh, it really is the key theme, not only to the book of Romans, but this passage from today really is, is the key to the Christian life. When you, when you boil it down, this is really where, it, this, is the, this is a key theme. And this is what the faith is about. And we don't have time to exhaust all the depths of this passage. So I, I just really want to implore all of you to be reading this week. Read this passage and especially preparing for next week as well. Read up until the end of, I mean, the, the verses from 15 all the way to the end of Romans. Be prepared to understand what this is and the meaning and the implications of this on our lives. So I just encourage everyone to, to read and reread and take a little bit of time to be uh, prepared as we come, come to worship. I think you're going to be struck with the, the powerful and perfect righteousness of God in bringing salvation to sinners. That's the message we're going to hear today. So we're going to start in, in verse uh, 15. So if you'll read with me here. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
in this passage, God's power is revealed. The righteous are told how to live, and then the following passage next week, we're also going to see God's coming wrath on on sin and sinners. But you could summarize the, the verses from Romans 16 through the end as of this chapter as, as God's power prescription and the penalties for those who don't actually take the prescription. The key theme of this is that we must start with understanding God's power. Just like, again, in Sunday school, we're talking about the resources that we have, which we sometimes forget about, the resources and the power of God. That's got to be our starting point as believers for everything and for how we think. Most of your Bibles probably have the heading for this, the verses that we read today. Probably have a heading of the righteous will live by faith. Most of you, I don't know if, you're, if your Bibles say that, but most, most do. And that is a key component of what, what we're studying today. Uh, but we have to remember that the, the headings and the comments are not the same as the actual inspired word of God. They're just some handles for us to get an idea of, of some of these things that are here. Um, so even though that's a, that, you know, that, that is a crucial text, uh, a, tr- a crucial truth of our text, the key is faith in what? Because it really matters about the object of our faith. The object of our faith is more important than just having faith. Um, how often have you heard unbelievers say, oh yes, I, I just have faith that everything is going to work out, or, or I'm a person of faith. Okay, well, you can have faith in Buddha or Muhammad or Zeus for that matter. It doesn't matter. None of those deities have the power to save us. So the object is most important. Yes, we're supposed to live by faith, but faith in what, or specifically who? What do we have faith in? That's where we want to start things off, and that's why we're, we're going to, the first verse in 16 is so important to understand that as foundational as part of the whole theme uh, of, of, again, this book and of the Christian faith. Paul starts with a declaration, and it's to state that he isn't ashamed of the gospel. So if he's not ashamed, he's actually saying he's actually proud of the gospel. And that's why we, we read verse 15, because that's he's eager to share this, right? He's eager because he's proud of the gospel, and he's not ashamed of it. So why is, that's a very, very bold statement, but why is that important? Why is that statement that I'm, I'm not ashamed, why is that important? Well, first of all, it, it's important because this gospel changes lives, including Paul, who was, uh, had his Damascus, Damascus Road experience where God got a hold of him and changed and gave him a 180-degree turn on where his life was headed. And it also saves people like you and I. That's the power that's in the gospel. It saves people from God's wrath. Paul's, Paul's encounter actually gave him literally and figuratively new eyes to see the truth that he had actually been not only rejecting but persecuting believers for. We also have to stand, understand why this is important because the cross was a scandal. 
I don't know how many of you have really heard of this or thought about this before, but what, understand how scandalous the cross was, especially to the Roman world. This was the most powerful empire in the world at that time, and they used their power and their resources to impose their will on all, all the, their other nations that they had conquered. And crucifixion was the most agonizing and humiliating way that a person could be put to death. So powerful and wealthy and educated people would generally not want to associate with the leader of some movement that was subjected to that kind of public execution. Yet Paul, he's excited to go to the capital of the most powerful nation and proclaim the power of God that came through this abominable act done to an innocent man. On top of that, Jesus was a Jew which was one of the subjugated people of the Romans. Think about this just logically for a moment, okay? What impact would a story like the gospel have on a society like the Roman Empire? They were conquerors and rulers. Many were very wealthy and educated. And, and anybody listening to such a story at face value would think it's just utter foolishness to follow a king like Jesus. He was tortured, beaten, and murdered by the Romans. Why would you as a Roman want to follow this guy? That doesn't sound very appealing, does it? But he's eager to go to a place in kingdom and, and proclaim the gospel where it is least likely to ever take root. So looking back on history, we see the success and the spread of the gospel even where it logically should have never survived. So if you were going to pick a place to go, <laughs> to go share this, this kind of a message, this was the last place on your list that you'd go to because these are the people that killed your, your leader. And yet, the word is brought there, and history shows us that because it was brought there, it spread rapidly throughout the entire world. And that was all part of God's plan, and it just proves the supernatural and divine power of the gospel. That in itself, I hope you see that that in itself is a supernatural power that through this time and this place and this people group, that's where this message went out to and that's where it spread the most. It's amazing. So Paul is proudly proclaiming God's power to save sinners, knowing that he's going to be subjected to scorn and ridicule and scoffing how many of you like to be ridiculed or scorned? He knew that that was what's going to be happening from this people group towards the message, that many people were, would absolutely just be scoffing at a message like this, that this person was on the cross, you want us to follow him? But he knew that, and yet he still wanted to go and preach it there. Today, especially as a culture, we are obsessed with being liked, right? Especially, especially in the realms of like social media where everybody's vying to try and get the most likes they can. People are trying to get likes. They don't want to get ridiculed. They want to, I want people to all like me. Our culture is just, doesn't have anything to do with any kind of ridicule or scoffing. But we just want to make sure we can get all the likes so we can feel good about ourselves. And the message of the gospel 
is absolute foolishness to those that are perishing. As we heard in the message Wednesday night from Psalm 36, I, I just want to read just one, uh, one sentence from that in Psalm 36. Man is depraved. I mean, that's clearly the message that, the, that Psalm 36 is, is, is sharing as part of that. It says, For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. That's the truth about mankind. That is our state right now. That our fallen state is, is that, what was just spelled out in the, in, in the gospel of, uh, of David there in, in Psalm 36. People need to first be confronted uh, and convicted of their sinful state before they're even going to recognize their need for a savior. So that's the first thing, and that's the first hurdle. And so a lot of people, the reaction is going to be ridicule, scorn, derision, or just outright avoidance altogether, because people do not want to be reminded of their sin. People know that there's, there's, there's issues in their lives, but they don't want to be told that. So you know you're going to get pushback from that. And it's just not popular to tell people that their sinful lifestyles are going to lead them to hell. That's just not what's going to win the popularity contest of any age. And remember that, that Paul was one of those ones who formerly persecuted Christians, even to, to the stoning of Stephen, if you recall. I mean, he was there holding on to the coats of all those people that stoned Stephen for proclaiming the gospel. He had a hand in all that. This is, this is Paul. But as we mentioned, you talk about the power, the power of the gospel changed Paul into a from a persecutor to someone who is willing to go to the least likely, probably most hostile place to go share the news of Jesus Christ. That's amazing power to change someone's whole mind that way. And not only was the cross a scandal to the Romans, but it was also a scandal to the Jews, if you think about this. The religious Jews hated Jesus. They trusted in their own religious rituals and works and traditions, not in faith in Christ. The religious leaders are the ones who held the illegal proceedings to condemn the innocent Jesus, if you recall. Uh, and they had this late night kangaroo court, so by, by the cover of darkness tried to have this phony trial to trump up something to try and convict Jesus of. They're the ones that did this, and that just shows how the depravity of man, you know, that his heart can lead to such a, a travesty of justice. They were guilty of, this is kind of mind-blowing too, they were guilty of condemning their own Messiah, the one that they have been looking forward to for all these centuries, appears, and they are condemning, they're the ones that condemn their own Messiah. Wow. He came to save their nation, and yet they rejected him. Now, obviously, the Romans were guilty of torturing and murdering Jesus, but the Jews were the ones that accused and condemned and brought the false charges against him and then turned him over to the Romans. It's interesting that even Pontius Pilate, the Roman, not the Jew, the Roman 
even declared the innocence of Jesus. Pilate says, and then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. There's just a very long history, unfortunately, even with the Jewish people, who are God's first chosen elect people, of rejecting their prophets. For, for years, stoning, condemning, all these different things that they do to, uh, to their prophets. And it, it was funny, I even just this week in my own personal re devotional readings in, uh, in Second Chronicles, and it was just another example I had kind of forgotten about. It's just, oh yeah, there's just, here's one of these other prophets. So I think most, there's a few that most of us know and remember that, that were mistreated or, or even killed. But there's just a, a, maybe a little lesser known one, uh, Micaiah, who actually, uh, he was one of God's true prophets in Second, Second Chronicles. And he confronts the, the wicked king Ahab. And then the king of Israel says, seize Micah and take him to Ammon, and the governor of the city, and, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him with the meager rations of bread and water until I return in peace. Oh, so that's what you do with the, the prophets that are speaking the truth? This is, this is how you treat them? But this, unfortunately, I said, the Israelites had a long history of doing that with their prophets. And uh, what the prophet says was true about Ahab, and he did not return. Many other prophets were treated as bad or worse than that. And coming back to the New Testament, we see that nothing's changed. In Luke 11, uh, verses 49 through 50, when Jesus is pronouncing all the woes on the scribes and Pharisees for all their hypocrisy and, and their trust in their own good works, he says, Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Truth is just not always popular, folks. And we see that uh, regardless of how that's going to be received, our job is to faithfully proclaim the truth, no matter what, regardless of the circumstance that we're in. We're supposed to claim that. And that's why Paul's like, I'm not ashamed to proclaim this. I know this is, going to re this is going to have repercussions on me. It will not be easy for me. It wasn't easy for any of the apostles after Jesus left. But faithfully to proclaim this truth, that's all of our jobs as Christians. We are to do that regardless of the circumstance. The gospel is truth, even though it's not popular, but the gospel is truth, and what our, our passage today is telling us, this is the power of God for salvation. That's why we should be emboldened to do it, because it's the power of God for salvation. We're going to be studying about that next week, actually, in, uh, in our Sunday school in Ephesians, uh, getting a little bit more into the power of, of what we have, what we have in the power of God. But this is it. The gospel's it, folks. That is what does the work. We share the gospel because it has the, the power to do the change. It's, it's what saves people. And I don't want to give away all the, the, the sermon for this Wednesday night, but Psalm 37, verse 39, I think is, is very uh, pertinent to what we're studying here today. In verse 30, uh, 39, it says, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. Again, 
It's the power. This is where it is. This is the power. That word power in the, in the Greek is the word that we get our, the root for what we get the word dynamite from. So I, I want to give you a sense of what that, power, uh, what that power means. It means that God has the mighty and abundant ability to miraculously do whatever he desires. He has the power to create, to destroy the world with a flood, to save sinners from their own sin. This is the power that God has, the wisdom that he has to be able to do that. We have to understand first this power when we are living our lives. To live by faith starts with understanding the power of God. We have to get that part. One last uh, scripture passage I want to share to drive home this point is from 2 Peter. And we studied this a few months ago in Sunday school too. But 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted, a, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So we're still in, in verse 16. Um, we see that this is the, the power uh, to save us from, from our sins. For all who believe, for all who believe in this, this is the power to save us from our sins. And it's given without distinction of nation, class, sex, ethnicity, or age. This invitation goes out to everyone and it changes all who believe and trust in this message. And this itself was also pretty countercultural at the time that Paul was writing this. Uh, when you're trying to start a movement, as we kind of alluded to earlier, you usually want to target the more powerful and influential people. But the gospel went out to everyone. <laughs> Even with all the different distinctions in classes and everything else that were going on, this message went out for everyone. Different people from different nations, all these different people, this is for everyone. And this, even the, the diversity of the, the, the early church must have been mind-blowing to some to see people like Roman guards, with Jewish believers, or tax collectors with former zealots, even in, in amongst the apostles, you've got, you've got people that were literally the enemy, the enemy of most Jews. I, I always remember, think of and ponder this, what it must have been like for someone who was a zealot that was, was plotting for the overthrow of Rome to be paired up with a tax collector, <laughs> a Jewish tax collector, who is now... <laughs> It's just absolutely hated by their, his own people. And yet, even within the 12 apostles, there's that much diversity of thinking. It wasn't because of their political, how they, they lined up politically. They understood that there was something that was above and beyond any differences they had in nations they came from or their ages or political ide ideologies or anything like that. This is something greater. It's the power of God that's uniting them all. It's an amazing thing. But again, it's going out to everyone and not just to the influential people. Uh, obviously, marketing experts today would, would not have uh, condoned the way that they went about doing this and just a small band of 
what seemed like powerless people going out and just <laughs> sharing the news. Instead, it's like, we're gonna share this with everyone. Slave or free, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what rung of society you're in. This message is for all. We need to note that uh, this message goes out to, as our, our, as our text says, it goes out to the Jew first and also the Greek. Now that's not some kind of uh, racism or discrimination or anything like that. It's part of historic, this is just the history of God's elect. We have to understand this. And when I say there's so much, why it's so important to understand the sufficiency of scripture and just how it all ties together, the old and the new. All of these things keep blending back and forth and, re and referring back to each other. You look back in the history and you see that the Jewish people were the first ones called. Doesn't mean they were better. And I think we know and we just saw and heard about how much they even rejected some of their own prophets. It wasn't because they were better or stronger or anything else. God chose the people, and they were the first ones. And then later, the rest of us get to be grafted into that and made part of that family. But historically, this, is, this verse is referring back to the fact that, look, you've got to understand Genesis to understand the gospel here because they all tie together. And that's, it was the Jews first, um, and they were the ones that uh, were the God's first elect. It, it also is a tie to the Old Testament passage in Genesis 17, uh, verses 4 through 7, when God promises to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed by his offspring. Uh, it reads, again, in uh, Genesis 17, 4 through 7, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be, the, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So now we see the power of God to fulfill this prophecy from centuries before. Again, this supernatural power fulfilling exactly what he had promised to Abraham, or Abram at the early part of that, to give him offspring, and then the whole world is going to be blessed because of that. And we see from this, from centuries before, this was prophesied, this has now been fulfilled. And yet, even with that understanding, the Jews struggled. There were Jewish believers, and they struggled to understand what this meant, this whole thing about the Messiah and following Jesus, because they were so used to this system that they'd been in, involved in, this sacrificial system that had gone on for years, They'd always had to go up to the temple every year and make their pilgrimage to give sacrifices. All the, but all of that was just pointing, it was just a shadow pointing to the final, ultimate, once and for all sacrifice that Christ made. And while this promise still includes some of the Jewish people, it now includes the people from, from all nations. I, Ephesians 1, verses 9 through 10, I think make or one of the clearest verses about this about why this was almost kind of a mystery for so many, because it was so different from what people were used to, especially from the Jewish, Jewish perspective. But Ephesians 1, verses 9 through 10 says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, 
which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite in him things in heaven and things on earth. God's plan is now clear for all to see. It's the power to fulfill that plan and to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That now has been realized after Jesus Christ appeared. Now we've got all of this together. And there's a, there's a lot more that we could go into about, and I'd love to go into about the, uh, the Jews being first and then the Gentiles and, and all of us being grafted into there. But we're still on our first verse here. We still have another verse to go. So I want to make sure we get to this here. Uh, we, um, in, even though the, the Jews were the first to be adopted to God, by God, they needed instructions still on what this meant to now live by faith and, and what that looks like in light of, of Jesus appearing. For verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We see a number of things here, but first we see that not only has God's power been revealed, now we see his righteousness is revealed, okay? There's the power of God, but now his righteousness. When we studied the attributes uh, of God in, in Sunday school last year, righteousness was one of those things that came up, came up in our studies. And it's one of those perfections of God. And one of the great mysteries that was revealed in the gospel now is how a perfect, holy, and just God could somehow forgive sinful, fallen people. Because those two don't seem like they match. Okay, wait, holy, perfect God that's got to be just, how's he going to forgive sinners? That's the power of the gospel. The righteousness of God is the rightness of God in doing that. We're now justified before a holy God because our sin debt was covered by the blood of Jesus. He can now pardon, this holy God can now pardon us and, and give us the power to live by faith because that justice is preserved because the penalty has been paid. This is the gospel message, and we all need to really be clear about this. The reason we can go before a holy God that's just is justice has been preserved. The penalty for sin, for all of our sin, has been paid. It's not just, okay, cover it up and ignore it. Our sin has not been ignored. Our sin had to be paid for, and it was paid for by Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Our sin debt has been paid. We're in right standing with God. This is the, this is the good news. We're free from the penalty of sin and death. We are blessed. You want to talk about riches? We are so blessed to have our sins forgiven, and now that we can have a right relationship with God because of the message of the gospel and this transaction that's happened now and allowed us to have that. The, the rituals and the ceremonies that the Jews had practiced for so long have now been fulfilled in the one final sacrifice of, of Jesus, the lamb without blemish, and faith in him. Only faith in him is all that's needed for salvation. And, and this is difficult for the Jews to fully grasp uh, 
And, and, and many Jewish believers struggle with this. I, I, I want you all to understand, you have to, even Peter, who was an apostle of Jesus, he was with Jesus. He started falling back into some of those same, those same things of thinking, oh, there are certain works that we have to do or certain ceremonial things that we need to do to be right with God. And he had to be rebuked by Paul to his face. And Paul did turn him back. But again, I, I, I hope you understand, I, all of this, I could go in a lot more detail about this, but, but think about this. It was hard for Jewish believers to give up all this stuff that they're used to doing. It's like, well, but every year we go up and we sacrifice and, and then we have to do this and this ceremony. And, but that's not what saves us. It is finished. Jesus saves us. And it was difficult for even the Jewish believers to grasp and this, we have to understand that this was instructive. Paul here, you know, he's writing to many of these people in, in Romans are Jewish believers, and it's not only instructive, but it's corrective for most of them. And if you read any of Paul's other epistles, you see that same theme going through a lot of times, that Paul's having to get them back on, on track. I certainly think of Galatians. It's like, you foolish Galatians. I mean, they keep going off track and wanting to go back to, oh yeah, well, I, but as long as I'm doing these good works, I'm okay. Or as long as I go to, as long as I go to the, the temple, you know, every, every week, I'm, I'm all good, right? No, <laughs> that's not what saves. The gospel is what saves. The power of God's righteousness being revealed to us, that's what saves us. We see that faith that is by faith in the finished work of Christ that, again, that justice is preserved. And we see that this letter makes it very, very clear that there, any kind of attempt for works-based salvation is never going to be enough. We can never be good enough. We can never learn enough. We can never do enough good deeds. And Paul is actually quoting part of another Old Testament passage when I see, keep saying, all of Scripture is God-breathed, Old Testament, New Testament, they go together. Paul, at the, at the very end of this verse, he's quoting an Old Testament passage from Habakkuk, uh, and I want to read the, the whole, that whole passage in context right now. In Habakkuk, we read, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Our passage in Romans today is the fulfillment of this vision given to Habakkuk. Again, centuries beforehand. This is the fulfillment of that. The old and new are married and are now in full view for all to see. And, and what a blessing it is to behold God's promises coming to fruition. You know, God's word is preserved for, and, and, it's, and it's, more than just, it's more than just helpful. This is not tips on how to live a good life. This is sufficient to save us. This is the power of God. This is not a, just a self-help book. This is not some suggestions on how you want to live your life. It is the word 
of God. It is the power of God revealed. It is the righteousness of God revealed. Now the prescription for believers is to walk and live by faith in, in Jesus Christ. Our faith is in his righteousness, not our own merit. As stated before, the object of our faith is key. And God, when we ponder this, I mean, God was willing to allow the execution of his son to let justice be preserved and to give us this relationship that we can have with him. All his justice, love, and mercy would be shown and his perfect power and righteousness revealed. And I know this is mind-boggling, even for us this very day, having even written the the written word of God for us. It's it's hard to fathom. Satan couldn't even grasp it either. Think about this for a minute. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but on the cross, Satan is thinking, victory, I've won. Jesus is hanging on a cross. Here's the Son of God. He's out of the way. He did not know that that very act, which to Satan and to the world looked like defeat of this whole movement of Christianity, was actually the fulfillment of God's plan. (laughs) And it was the covering and the power needed to get God's righteousness to us. Because now that's imputed to us. Jesus Christ paid that penalty so now that we could have his righteousness given to us. Wow. I hope you get that and grasp that. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why we celebrate. That's why we come to worship. He is worthy of worship. He had a plan that no men could think of, could conjure this up. Even Satan, the enemy of God, could not see that this was still all part of his plan and that God was in control of all this. The creator's plans are just beyond our full comprehension of the creatures, and uh, what looked like defeat (laughs) was actually just revealed as the power and triumph of God to save sinners. By faith we are saved, and by faith we live. These verses should leave no doubt as to how we are saved and how we're to live. It's by faith. We have those in our hallway here, one of the five solas, sola fide, by faith. It's the starting point. So, you know, Paul has made a very bold proclamation of God's power and righteousness revealed in the gospel. You know, the the gospel is the story of, of a slain, righteous, and innocent man who overcame death and is now interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. We can now trust in his atonement for our sins. That's the gospel message. It's a bold proclamation, not only in Paul's time, but in our society today, that there's only one way that we could be right with God, not by doing anything or having anything or being anybody in particular, but just by faith in Jesus Christ. So we've been given also a clear uh, explanation of how we're then to live. And next week we're even going to see and hear more about what happens to those who reject that truth. And uh, again, I just put in a plug, please read ahead on this. You, you really, it'll really help you understand as, as the scriptures uh, preach next week as well. 
because it helped, and it helped you understand and make sense out of the world. Uh, these next verses as, as well, uh, it explains what we see all around us. Uh, and it just, and we see what he prescribes to us. So my challenge to all of us is are, are we prepared to make the same kind of bold declaration about the gospel? That's my challenge to each one of you and to me and what I do from day to day. Are we prepared to be bold and proclaim this same gospel and not ashamed of it, not shirking away from it just because of the situation that we're in? Are you afraid to make this declaration about the gospel? You know, Paul wasn't, and we don't have to be, if we understand back to the power. If we understand the power of what this can do, even though it might seem, well, if I share the gospel with this person, they're never going to get it. No, it doesn't matter if you're sharing it. It's the power of the gospel that works on that person's heart. So be prepared, be bold, be emboldened to do that. When we understand that power in the gospel, what it does, we should be eager to share that because it changes lives, and when lives are changed, the world changes. My encouragement and my admonition to everyone is to just walk in that power uh, this week. Get this clear in your own thinking and in your own mind, whether you're going to trust in your own good works or you're going to live by the power of the gospel. As we get ready to approach communion today, believers, I, I just ask you to consider what, what was just shared. Consider that in our time together as we, as we come together and gather around the table. Because part of communion is saying we're in agreement and we're in union with those who believe the gospel. So I, I just want to make it clear, if you're just visiting us, the communion table is for all believers. So we invite you to uh, in, enjoy that. The elements are in the back. Uh, you could pick those up, take them at your own time, come back, have a moment for reflecting on what was just shared, and then we'll take the elements together. If, uh, if you are not uh, yet a believer, I just really plead with you to consider what's just been shared, what you've heard today. We're, we're, we're not in the habit of typically doing altar calls or anything like that um, here, uh, but if you're ready to accept that invitation of accepting Christ's finished work, the message of the gospel, we would, uh, and, and trust and have faith in, in, in Jesus Christ, we're here to help you walk through that and we just encourage you to come, come see Dan or myself afterwards. We would love to talk with you to discuss what, what that means. And if you would like to under, or even if you're just still searching and you just want to understand more about the gospel, please seek us out. Or there's prayer cards in the back on the side of the, of the offering box in the back. Let us know. We would love to give us your, your questions, your comments, your contacts. We would be happy to share this with you. There is nothing more important that we could possibly want to, to share with anybody. And we want to see you have the same security, the same hope, and, and understand the, the, the riches that are in the gospel. So I uh, ask you to reflect on that. Uh, again, the elements are in the back. Please uh, 
go ahead and take those and bring those back to your seats and we'll, we'll take them together.